The title of today's sermon is Not a Talent Show and is taken from Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. I'd like to begin our time together by asking God to be our teacher this morning, to use his humble servant to bring forth a message that speaks to all of our hearts and helps us to be living in harmony with his will and ways. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for the completed canon, the word of God, the book of Matthew. Speak to us, we would ask, through it. Help us, Lord, to understand how we are to live in this present age in which we find ourselves, as we anticipate, as we look forward to, as we expect the return of our Lord Jesus Christ in power and glory. We pray this in his name. Amen. I don't know if you remember, but back in the 1970s, there was a TV show called The Gong Show. Some of the older folks might recall it was run by a a nutty guy named Chuck Barris. He was the creator of two other classic game shows, The Dating Game and The Newlywed Game. I'm going to need to apologize to the word classic for that. Recently, The Gong Show has been revived. I haven't watched it. But I'm sure nothing will ever compare to the zaniness of the original. It invited people onto their program that had dubious levels of talent. And they were to perform and compete for a cash prize given to the winner at the end of the show. The contestants had to survive the gong that was wielded by celebrity judges, including the likes of Jamie Farr, Artie Johnson, Rex Reed, and, of course, Rip Taylor. Just to remind you, here is a clip from that show. Detroit has a car that gets 90 miles to the gallon. The bad news is, it runs on coffee. Hey, but seriously, everybody's trying to build a small car. The Italians have a new small car. It's called the Godfather. You open the hood, and there's another hood. Hey, but seriously, President Carter's trying to save energy. He just lifted the import quote on enchiladas. After all, we need all the gas we can get. Not funny? Hey, but seriously, folks, I don't worry about the sugar shortage. I use artificial sweetener. In fact, I use so much artificial sweetener, I now have artificial diabetes. Hey, but seriously, folks, hey, have you heard the new TV season? Now, there's a mini-series about an entire basketball team that goes deaf, dumb, and blind. It's called the Lakers. Hey, but seriously, folks, and last joke. My career's been going very well lately. I just flew to Hollywood, and naturally I took a no-frills flight. I don't want to say it was cheap and dirty and overcrowded, but my role was changed to Kinzukunze. Hey, thank you. why they did that to you had the audience in the palm of your hands they were yelling bravo pat why did you do that to buddy talent hmm 
Now, if you were with us last week, you didn't miss much. My wife, Sue, showed off her talent of spinning 56 teacups on the top of 10-foot poles all at the same... No, that's not talent either. We're going to talk about talents today, but not that kind of talent. Okay? Unfortunately, we can't play the gong show today because we're in the midst of the study of the Olivet Discourse. This, of course, is found in Matthew chapters 24 and 25. When I've heard some men teach on this text, I've suspected they were actually auditioning for the gong show. Now, last week, we examined the fourth in a series of that, 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 no, a series of five parables in which Jesus was teaching on the end times. You're going to go home and you're going to think about that all afternoon. (laughs) You'll recall in the first four of the five parables we will be looking at, uh, Jesus is answering a question that was posed by his disciples, four of them uh, in particular. That, those questions were found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 3. So there wasn't one, but actually a series of three questions. And they were as follows. When will all these things be? What shall be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? Now, Jesus has taken the bulk of two chapters to answer their questions. And we're in the midst of the five parables, which are part of that answer. Last week, we looked at the parables of the ten virgins in which Jesus stressed the need for his disciples to be prepared for his soon return. The parable we look at today is called the parable of the talents. And in this parable, Jesus stresses the need for his disciples to remain faithful in their service during the delay in his return. As you know, these five parables are not addressed to anyone that is alive during the church age. Rather, Jesus is speaking to a future generation of Jews that will live during the seven years of tribulation just prior to his return. Now, the parable of the ten virgins emphasized the need to be ready, but it did not provide any of the specifics as how to prepare to be ready. In the parable of the talents, Jesus gives his future generation of disciples specifics on how to live during the tribulation. These are very practical instructions for all believers in any age on how we should live and be ready. Let me remind you once again that Jesus shares this with four of his disciples who are living under the paradigm of the law. They are not part of the church. The church has not come into existence yet. These instructions are quite specific, and they are related to a future generation of Jewish people who will trust in him during these end-time events, in particular the tribulation. However, timeless truths, which are some are found in every passage of Scripture, some are found in this text, timeless truths can always be applied to believers of any age period. So let me remind you that this teaching is not on salvation as well. This is not about losing salvation. This is not losing your salvation because you failed to be faithful. This is about the rewards that God has for those who remain faithful during difficult times. As you know, salvation is a free gift. It cannot be lost. It cannot be forfeited. It cannot be merited. It's given by God for your trust and belief in his Son. Man's justification cannot be earned. It's given as a gift. 
The Lord is teaching that those who will live during the tribulation, just prior to his reigning on earth during the millennium, there will be many opportunities afforded to disciples to capitalize upon. He promises that those who do so, who are used by him during that time, that they will be rewarded richly in the time to come for their service. On the other hand, those who choose not to serve him in effective ways will lose future opportunities in the coming kingdom. In the parable, Jesus is pictured as being the master of the household. And he is going away. He's going on a trip. And preparing for that trip, he calls his servants to himself and he distributes various responsibilities to three of them. Well, with that as my introduction, would you turn with me now in your Bibles to the book of Matthew, chapter 25. You can find this on page 987 of our Pew Bible, which is in the, in the back, of the, uh, back of the pews right in front of you. Now, here we will see the opportunities for service being dispensed to the disciples of that age. Please bear in mind that a believer is someone who has trusted in Christ as the promised disciple is the promised Messiah. But a disciple is much more than that. A disciple is one who has decided to pursue the deeper, abundant life that is offered by Christ to committed followers. There's a huge difference between being a believer and being a disciple. As Jesus said previously in our, in our book, many are called, but few are chosen. So then, I believe all three of these saves... Uh, slaves spoken of in this parable are rightly related to the master. Now the fourth parable spoken by Jesus to a future generation begins in verse 14 when he says, For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. Looking back in this chapter, we can see that Jesus is continuing on the same subject of the kingdom of God, not the church. Just let me reinforce that. The man that is in view here in verse 14 is the same man that we find in verse 13, the son of man. We know that because there is a conjunction that begins verse 14. The conjunction is four, which links this section to the previous section. The man, the, the master of the slaves, is going on a long journey. I believe that long journey roughly equates from the parable to real things to the time between Jesus' ascension from the Mount of Olives to his second coming again at the Mount of Olives. More specifically, this refers to, as I've said, the tribulation period. So how long will he be gone? They don't know at this time. And uh, given the unreliability of transportation during this age, during these days, it could be a long time before the master returns. So, therefore, he splits up his possessions. He divides the responsibility of his estate between three of his household slaves. And he gives them specific things to accomplish. The master divides his possessions to test, to test the responsibility of his three slaves. We get the specifics of this divvying up of his property in verse 15. Jesus says, To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Now, it's not difficult to see that Christ is the master who's going on this long journey. 
That's, we've called it the postponement period, the interim, the church age. The three servants, however, are the Jews who are alive during the tribulation period. They are responsible to present, to protect his interests, I should say, in his absence. The slaves will be given individualized responsibilities according to their abilities. Individualized responsibility according to their abilities. Many understand this in terms of talents. That's the word that's used here in the text. Today, we would define a talent as a natural ability. To play the violin, or the oboe, or the piano, or to sing. I virtually have no talent at all. However, during biblical times, a talent wasn't that. It was a weight. It was a measure of some substance, usually precious metals like silver or gold. The unit of weight then becomes, became so, uh, so acquainted with the precious metals that it was applied to a level of silver. So it became a talent of silver. These talents were used to purchase land, to buy animals, or other big things like a, a new camper or a new car. Some have tried to figure out the value of a talent. What would the silver in a talent be worth today? Most commentators suggest that a talent would be worth about 20 years uh, wages for a day laborer. The first servant then, if you follow that, is given five talents by the master. Since individual, individual talent is worth 20 years of work. In America today, the average worker earns $31,000 a year. So five talents would be a uh, hundred years of wages or equal to about $3,100,000. That's a lot of talent. The second servant was given by the master two talents equal to 40 years of wages, which would approximately be worth about $1,240,000. Now the third servant was given only one talent by the master. In today's economy, it'd be worth about $620,000. All of these slaves were given a generous amount of money. Obviously, the master would never have given them this amount of money, of his parts of his possessions, unless he thought the slaves would be faithful. He likely was willing to give them the benefit of the doubt that they would be prudent, that they would be dependable with his possessions. Now, some commentators ask why there's a difference between the number of talents given to the three slaves. Why five, two, and one? Let me remind you, this is a parable. It's a fictitious story used to illustrate one main point. Some define parables as a heavenly story with an earthly meaning. The master gives his slaves these different amounts of talents. Why? The text tells us. Because it's according to their abilities. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking these talents as being money only. Rather, it is descriptive or better to think of talents as opportunities. When we think of God-given gifts, we usually think of our abilities, whether that be natural or spiritual abilities. And sometimes some people equate it with a, a, the uh, acquisition of wealth. All of our blessings, all of our talents, however they're defined, do come from the Creator, from our God, from our Master. Our gifts, our talents, our opportunities, which I prefer to call them, are given to us to use according to our capabilities. 
Not all disciples are expected to produce the same results. But all disciples are to be faithful with what God has given them. Now, some commentators identify the talents as the gospel, the word of God, spiritual gifts, or even our time, talent, and treasure. None of these ideas work very well if you plug them into the text and interpreting this parable. For example, did the first slave get four more gospels than the last slave? Was the second slave given two more spiritual gifts than the first slave? So, it is better, in my view, to understand these talents as opportunities to exercise responsibility for the Savior. We are to be faithful stewards of the opportunities given to us proportionally to one's intellect, gifting, and levels of abilities. That means a disciple should be industrious and should further the work of the Lord. After all, all that we have really belongs to him. He's simply granting us the opportunity as stewards to invest in his work according to our ability. I then see these as tests of faith for the three servants. The great thing is that no slave of the master will ever be given more than he can handle, for it's given according to the text to one's ability. The person entrusted with little, maybe one talent, will be required to do all that he can with that little, that one talent that's been given to him. Therefore, all disciples can live up to their full potential. We can accomplish everything that God desires us to accomplish, irrespective of whether we have five talents or one. Yet those who have been given much will also be expected to return much. However, the master does not expect the same amounts from all. I believe that's one of the points in this text. He expects us to be reliable as his servants. He's expecting reliability from his servants. If we read verse 16, I think we see that immediately immediately, highlight, circle that, underline it, immediately the one who received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. The word immediately implies a swift response to the master's gifting, to the master's entrusting of talents. The servant didn't wait around and think about when he should get to work. He put his talents immediately to work. He didn't wait for the pastor to invite him to serve in some capacity. He immediately put the talents to work. And he also made a profit with that which was given to him. He got involved with the commerce of the day. Notice it says, it says he traded with them. The slave got involved with people who were like-minded. He did the art of the deal, if you will. No doubt the art of the deal with another one that could be trusted. So the first servant doubles the talents given to him by the master. He grabbed the opportunity, he seized the day, and he wisely turned a prophet which was entrusted to him. Now in verse 17, in the same manner, in the exact same way, the one who received two talents was given two more. The master continues telling us about the second servant. Two talents, and he doubles the talents that were given to him. Both the first and the second servants double their talents, even though they were giving, given differing amounts of talents. 
They were equally diligent in the task given to them. And they equally doubled the investment. What is implied here, I believe, is that the first two slaves were willing to take a certain amount of risk in investing what the Lord had granted to them. It was an obedient risk. All of Christ's disciples of every age are expected to take risks for the Savior. However, unfortunately, many believers are adverse to risk. There is great opportunity presented to us. We are engifted. We are given these talents, however we define them. We are given these opportunities. And those opportunities will disappear if we will not be a risk taker for the Lord. In the end, those who are unwilling to take risk will produce no results or little results. Disciples are called to be a risk taker. Are you not called to make disciples? Oftentimes, we pour our lives into another. This is the disciple-making process. But oftentimes, we will never see the end results in our own lifetimes. But the master sees the results. Now, that's not to say that we should expend our lives foolishly with people who won't respond to the truth. I see a lot of believers who play, res- play the, the art of rescuing others. They pour their efforts into people who will never produce the results for the kingdom that God has called us to do. We are to invest our lives risking uh, time, effort, our reputations at times, in the lives of others, and we need to trust God to produce those results. We might not ever see those results, but he will, and he's keeping an account of them. The master thinks about the possibilities, both negative and positive, in our risk-taking as his slave. All of these men could have wasted the possessions that were given to them in riotous living like the prodigal son, but the matter The master risks his possession by entrusting them to his servants, believing that they will produce on the investment that he is making. Now, the third servant is not willing to be a risk taker. That's really the problem here. But instead of going out and investing the money, uh, in entering into commerce, into taking a risk, he buries his talent in the ground. Look at me at verse 18. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. The third servant played it safe. He avoided all risks by putting the money in the ground. He dug a hole, and he put a fortune in the earth. To bury precious objects in ancient times was quite a common practice. In fact, uh, it was the safest place for some people to put their monies to protect them. However, to to bury it is also the most unprofitable place you can put it. In recent years, archaeologists and um, uh, those digging in the ground in Israel have found sacks of buried money on occasion. It seems that people would hide their monies in the ground and forget to return to it because of some unseen event, such as death. All three servants fall into one of two categories here. They are either faithful or they are unfaithful in their service to their master. The faithful servants took the talents that God gave them, that the master gave them, and they put them to work for their master right away. 
But the unfaithful servant hid his talent in the ground. Instead of taking and seizing the opportunity to impress his master, he passed. He took a, he took a, a pass on it. Now the third slave is not purposely doing evil. However, to do nothing is essentially robbing the master of his increase that was expected. We too have been gifted by God. We too have been given opportunities to serve him. We too have been given talents, if you will, however you define them. We are to invest our talent, our lives, and the opportunity that he presents to us in people and in ministry. It is a great privilege to serve the master of the universe, but it is also our responsibility to bring home the silver. After all, he's given us the gold standard. He's given us his life as an example to follow. The problem with the third servant, and for many today in the church, is they don't know when the Lord will return. The third servant, like the servant back in chapter 24, who I'm, I'm hoping you remember, didn't expect the master to return in his lifetime. Look at verse 19. Now, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts with them. There it is. A long time passed. They didn't, he didn't expect the master to show up, but he does. He shows up during their lifetime and he calls them for an accountability. Accountability time for the slaves had come. The question for them and for all who accept the free gift of eternal life, no matter when it is, is are you ready for that time of accounting in your life? The delay, I'm sure, seemed interminably long. I remember when I was a freshman in high school, I thought graduation would never come. I remember joining the United States Navy. I thought I'd die before my enlistment ended. We could say the same thing about college, seminary, and marriage. Oh, oh my. How did that get in there? Sorry. Let me erase that. Sorry. The third servant never thought the master would come in his lifetime, but he did. The parable illustrates for us that the rapture of the church could take place in our lifetime. It might not, but it might. For some of us, that window of his return is getting a little bit short, a little bit tight, a little bit narrow. However, there is a direct application to the Jews who trust in Christ as the Messiah during the tribulation. They will have a tough time, but the Lord will return in their lifetime for them. Can you imagine living, living through hell on earth and waiting for the master to come? It would seem like he would never come, but he will come to settle accounts with his servants, and they'd better be ready and prepared. The long delay was over. The settling of accounts refers to the judgment seat of the Lord Jesus. He will examine their works and reward them according to what they have done. There will either be loss or reward. Today, we await the rapture of the church, and that delay, too, can seem interminable. But he is coming, and when he does, he will come to settle accounts with each and every believer, just as Paul wrote to the Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed paid back, rewarded for the deeds done in the body according to that which he has done, whether it be good or bad. 
This is true throughout any age or time period, just as well as it is in harmony with what is taught by Jesus in the parable of the talents. Here we see a sufficient amount of time has gone by for these servants to to invest what was given to them and to turn a profit. But the delay has caused some to think, then and now, that the master will not come and hold them accountable. But they are mistaken. The master is coming. He keeps all of his promises. The Bible assures us of this over and over again. How many examples do you want that God keeps his promises, that Jesus will do what he said he would do? In Joshua, we read, not one of the good promises which the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. All came to pass. And in Jeremiah, the Lord said, You have seen well, for I am watching over my word to perform it. It was Paul's personal testimony to the Philippians that God keeps his word. I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it. Lastly, Paul, writing to the Galatians, reminds them, Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Listen, my dear friends, the Lord Jesus has promised to return and he will hold court. He will judge our faithfulness irregardless of the amount or length of the delay. He promises us a fair hearing, but the question is, were you ready? Were you prepared or were you faithful? In the parable of the master, he returns and he reviews the accounts Looking at verse 20, the one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained you five more talents. Notice that in this review, it follows the same order in which the talents were given. I am reminded that the Lord said, To everyone who has been given much, much will be required of them. This man was given much, and he invested his talents, and he gained five more. He had done what the Lord asked him. The slave did not say, Hold on, Lord. I know you want to hold me accountable, but can, can I ask my mother to come up and give, a, give you a witness as to why I didn't accomplish your will? Lord, I didn't gain five talents, but the government promises that they'll make up the shortfall. There's personal responsibility here for every disciple. This slave had a clear understanding of the terms of the deal. He didn't try to fudge the numbers, nor did he try to put responsibility on someone else. He didn't accuse the master of being mean or hard. He didn't seem he didn't need to since he doubled the investment that the Lord gave to them. He understood and he accomplished the task. Now, this first servant did as he was instructed, and he brought home the gold, well, silver in this case. And in verse 21, his master said to him, "Well done, good and faithful servant." You were faithful in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy, the happiness of your master. Clearly, faithfulness is in view here. It's a virtue that was being tested by the master. The biblical principle is clear. Faithfulness in small things qualifies you for bigger things. The first servant was and is rewarded for his faithfulness. 
not only is he commended by the master, but he's given additional privileges to even earn more rewards. But the greatest reward of all is entering into the joy of the master. That is his. The Bible doesn't tell us a lot about future rewards, but this parable seems to address the issue that if we are faithful in the things God entrusts to us, he will give us more and more opportunities, not only in this life, but in the life to come. My hope is to be mayor of Bethlehem in the future. I heard the mayorship of Lacey was already filled. I think I could handle that. All kidding aside, the joy of the master begins with the reigning with Christ during the millennium. Paul wrote to Timothy saying, if we endure with him, we shall also reign with him. And John the Relevator, speaking to the church at the Atra, said, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give all authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father." The servants of Jesus in any age have opportunity in faithful service in this life to have more opportunities in the life to come. However, if you waste that opportunity given to you now, no matter how small or insignificant it is, you've lost any greater opportunity in the future. Don't you want to hear the Master's words? Well done! Isn't that the greatest reward any servant could hope to hear from their master? Well done, good and faithful servant. There it is. Those two adjectives describe a trustworthy, a reliable, a faithful disciple. This man had loyalty and godliness at the base of his character. He latched on. He seized the opportunity of a lifetime, invested it for future Rewards. What does he receive? He not only gets public praise from the master, but he gets greater opportunity for more. The master commends his faithfulness in a few things. Isn't that funny? Think about that. A few things. He's given over $3 million. And the master, well, God owns the whole world, doesn't he? So $3 million is just peanuts to him. But he says he will entrust him with more and he will share in the joy and the happiness of the Lord. The point's clear. When the king returns for his chosen people, Israel, at the end of the tribulation, there will be an accounting held for those who have trusted in him. Those who invest wisely will get a great return on their investment. Many things, it's called in this text. Now, verse 15. Listen to what John, I should say, in John chapter 15, listen to what he says about this same topic, about faithful service. The Lord says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full, complete. There it is. Did you notice, as I read it, that the sentence begins with a conditional word, if? It's up to you. If you are faithful. If you do according to his word. 
It's up to you. The second servant is rewarded for his faithfulness as well, as we read in verse 22. The one who received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. As the first servant had passed the test, so did the second servant. He'd invested what was given to him. He doubled it. He discharged his duties. He didn't compare himself to the first servant. He just did what the master commanded him to do. And in verse 23, we see the result. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. The same exact commendation. You were faithful in a few things, and I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You see, it's not the portion that matters, but the proportion which is important. Both men were slaves, but they were not equal. One had greater gifts than the other. However, both were faithful in what was entrusted to them, and both faithfully served and enjoyed the commendation and the blessing of God. Both entered into the Master's joy. The Lord is completely fair in his judgments. We will receive the exact reward that we should, even though the portions might differ or are not equal, they will be proportionally the same. Both doubled their talents and both received the same reward. Now the last man, standing, if you will, is in verse 24. The one who has received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. I don't know why I'm leading into the microphone because it's not on. Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not snow, 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 No, so, and gathering where you scattered no seed. Oh my. Did you notice his great mistake? It's the same mistake many believers make about the Lord today. They also believe the master to be a hard man. God's not fair. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. The last servant attempts to cover up his responsibility, his carelessness, his unfaithfulness by blaming the master, as many do today. Lord, why did I get sick with cancer? Lord, why did my child have to die? Or whatever you want to insert in there. They blame Lord for their misfortune. But we all know that these things happen because sin entered into the world at the fall. The unfaithful servant makes the mistake of misjudging the character of the master. When the third servant, with only one talent, reported to the master as to what he did with it, he could, too, have received the commendation and the reward, as did the first servants, but he chose to be unfaithful. He buried it. Then he has the gall to come in with lame excuses for his lame behavior. His view of the master is negative because he's misunderstood the truth about the master. The master is generous. The master is kind. The master is sharing. The master is trusting. He entrusts all of his possessions to these three slaves. And yet, what does he say? He's afraid because the master is a hard man. And what did he do? He did nothing. Thinking that doing nothing was his only defense against the retort of the master. He could have avoided all of this. He could have avoided making this wrong decision. 
if he had just known the master better. I hear excuses from people today. They say things like this. Pastor, I I can't do evangelism. I, I can't talk to my neighbors in my neighborhood. If I ask them why they cannot do so, they say, Pastor, I just don't have the gift. Pastor, I'm afraid. Couldn't you send Jeff over and he could do it? They beg off on their responsibility. They put it on others. What if I say the wrong thing to someone and they get mad at Jesus and and won't trust in him for the rest of their lives? The problem is, all of us have been commanded to be his witnesses and to make disciples. It's a command. It's not a holy suggestion. The Lord is not hard and demanding. That's a misunderstanding of who he is and his character. The third servant is unmasked for who he really is by his own testimony. Look with me at verse 25. He admits, I was afraid. There it is. There it is. So I went and hid your talent in the ground. See, here's back what you gave to me. He cops out to fear. How many today cop out to fear when it comes to obeying the Lord? Truthfully, he was simply risk-adverse. He didn't want to put himself out there for someone might see him. Somebody might say something negative about him. He was afraid of men rather than being afraid of God. But then, if you really don't think the master is going to come back at all, just go bury it. And later, if he doesn't show up, you can go dig it up and spend it on yourself. But the master did return, and he's forced to plead fear. I was afraid of you. You see, the third servant is blind to the true character of God. He is generous. He is loving. He is offering you abundancy beyond all that you could ever ask or think. His actions, the third slave's actions, were irresponsible because he just played it safe, and thus he achieved nothing. His only concern was to do no wrong. Just keep his nose clean. Wipe the slate clean rather than being proactive and responsible and faithful. Now notice how he portrays himself as being virtuous in the next verse. He says, at least I didn't lose anything. That's what he's pleading here. Let me give you back all that is yours. He plays the victim card here. He comes up with excuses that will not cut it on the day of accounting. When we stand before the Lord at the Bema seat, and if you want to hear that, well done, my good and faithful servant, then you need to take responsibility for your life, which he was refusing to do. Notice in verse 26, his master said to him in judgment, you wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no Seed. There's a but that begins this sentence, a big but. And it shows a strong contrast with the previous two servants. They were called good and faithful. He's called lazy and wicked. Lazy means he shirked his responsibilities for no good reason. He said the master was a hard man, showing that he didn't know the master's real character. The master rebukes him for being wicked. 
That's not speaking of his character necessarily, but of his works. He acted wickedly and slothfully by not investing the talent that was given to him by the master. The unfaithful servant was evil in his motives and in his actions. So this statement is in direct contrast with the previous two servants who were good and faithful. He's wicked and lazy, not because he didn't have the ability to accomplish what God had given him to do, but because of a lack of of a conscious effort to make it so. He was risk-averse. He played it safe, all because of his lack of knowledge of his master. In the end, it's a bit of a smokescreen to cover his self-serving and disobedient heart. In reality, he refused to take any risks to do any work to expend himself in the interest of the master because he was totally concerned about himself. And so the master adjudged him according to his works. Look at me at verse 27 where the master says, Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. The minimum he could have done was gone to the bank and put it on deposit. But he reasoned to himself, I believe it's not stated within the text, but I think it's probably reasonable to think so, that if the master did not return, which she probably thought he wouldn't, that if he put the money in the bank, then it would be recorded underneath the master's name because the slave couldn't come up with $620,000. And then he wouldn't get the cash back for himself. But if he deposited the talent in the ground, he could always get it for himself and move on somewhere else where they didn't know him. No one would have believed that a slave could have that kind of money. So he couldn't take it to the bank. It's silly and foolish to speculate on some questions like this. It's a little bit foolish to ask questions that are not really the point of the parable because they can mislead and distract us from Jesus' teaching. So what we're trying to focus in here on in this text is the main point that Jesus is making. Parables point to one specific Thing. Clearly, it was the master's will for, for him to gain an uh, investment on what he gives, but that really isn't the point, nor is the point that the Lord has high standards. He doesn't. He has standards according to our abilities. He empowers us to accomplish all that he would have us do. So despite what he was asked of, His fear should have been overcome by his knowledge of who the Lord was, and he should have done the minimum at least, which was invest the money in the bank. Listen now, some suggest that since the master calls him wicked and lazy, that he could not have been a believer in the master. They they say that this proves the first two were saved, if you will, using that jargon, and the last slave was an unbeliever because it fits with the paradigm that they're trying to place on top of the scripture then if that would be true, why would the master appoint him to a position of service in the first place? If that be true, why would he hold him to such a standard as he holds the other two faithful servants to? The point of this text is to show how some are faithful and some are unfaithful in their service to the master. To hold such a position, 
To make this about lost or saved is to miss the whole point of the text, which is that faithfulness will be rewarded and unfaithfulness loses rewards. That's central to this parable. These three servants will enter all into the kingdom of God because it wasn't wasn't a matter of faithfulness in their works. It was a matter of faithfulness in the master whom they knew and um, trusted in. But because of failed opportunities, they would lose position and joy in the coming kingdom. This is fleshed out for us in the last few verses of this text. Notice in verse 28. Therefore, take the talent from him. He loses what he already had, right? And give it to the one who has ten talents. The third servant is rebuked. You're lazy. He's rebuked by the master, and he loses his reward because of his unfaithfulness. He's not only... He's not only reprimanded publicly, but he's demoted and then excluded from joy, or, in my view, co-ruling with Christ in the coming millennium. There are no excuses that are acceptable to the judge at the Bema seat over our behavior. Either you are faithful, which he's enabled you to be, or you are unfaithful. Conversely, we cannot gain what we do not have. We lose what he has given to us. Please keep in mind that this lesson is given to disciples and does not pertain to the lost. This is not about salvation. Jesus is speaking to four disciples on the Mount of Olives. This is about rewards in the coming kingdom. Jesus now repeats the biblical principle that's being taught in this section of verse 29. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance but from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. Notice that this verse begins with the Greek term gar. It's translated into English as for. It might have been translated as well into since. It expresses the cause or the reason for what just happened. We might understand this today as a proverb or a wise saying. For it shows that disciples must use what God has given them or they will lose it. Use it or lose it. That includes all your opportunities, your spiritual gifts, your abilities, your material blessings. This is totally consistent with the rest of Scripture. Peter writes, As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. The writer of Hebrews says, Since you have become dull of hearing, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need food. Uh, you have come to need milk and not solid food. In modern jargon, this could have been stated as, Use it or lose it, or no pain, no gain. When opportunity knocks, act on it. Be ready to serve because there might not be another one. Disciples are not to sit around passively waiting for something to happen. We are to get busy. We are to be about the task the Lord has given us. We are to make disciples. That's the command that we are given. Now the basic message of the Master then is this. Invest your life for me. Invest your life for me rather than self. I know a lot of Christians who invest their lives in self. 
rather than investing their lives for Christ. This guy didn't do so. Why? Because he says he was afraid. But he really never even tried, did he? I know a lot of Christians who won't try because of fear or some other reason. Failure. You can't succeed if you never try. All he had to do was go to the bank and put it in the bank, and he would have at least done the minimum for the master. Where the parables of the ten virgins, uh, virgins, virgins, the parable of the ten virgins emphasized personal preparation for the coming of the Lord, the parable of the talent stresses the importance of faithful service during his delay. That begs the question, what does it look like to be ready? What does it look like to be prepared? Not passively waiting, but proactively serving. Producing lasting results that will be seen by our Lord at the judgment seat. The postponement or interim in which we live was never intended to be a meaningless and empty time. You're not waiting between flights at the airport. This is a wonderful time of opportunity for you to put your talents, your opportunities to work for the king. Notice the fate of those who do not seize the day as the master commands in verse 30. He orders his other servants to grab this unfaithful servant by the robe and throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. Into that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, if you were a reformed Calvinist, you would see this as being tossed into hell, into eternal damnation, for you were a false professor. That doesn't mean someone who works at a university. A weed among the wheat are not part of the elect. What silliness. Clearly, all three of these men were servants, slaves of their master. They were members of the group. They were all part of the master's household, and they were all given accomplishment, uh, tasks to accomplish. But for the reason of the wording, most Western readers are uncomfortable with Eastern overstatements and metaphorical language. This is hyperbole. It's intended to heighten the idea of the loss of reward or the loss of fellowship with the master. Again, Jesus is referring back to that which he has just spoken about, the wedding feast. The wedding feast, as you recall, was at night. If you missed the procession and you did not arrive on time to the doors where the wedding feast was held, they were locked and you couldn't get in. You could see the bright lights of the wedding feast on the inside, the gaiety of all the events taking place, but you were stuck in what was called the outer darkness. The unfaithful servant was taken by the scruff of the collar and tossed out of the wedding feast into the outer darkness. That doesn't mean he lost his salvation. He lost his proximity, his closeness to the master. He was not punished. He was taken away. It was taken away what could have been his. So then, many understand this mysterious concept or term, outer darkness, in ways that are are not biblical. You cannot lose your salvation. It refers to exclusion from opportunity for rulership and privilege in the coming kingdom. As I said The darkness outside was an exclusion from a well-lit banquet hall where others were enjoying 
what they had been given by Christ for their faithfulness. To be excluded from the joys of ruling in the kingdom definitely will cause weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's another term that's misunderstood. It's used of intense grief at death or some other terrible event. In this case, it's the unfaithful servant experiencing his lost opportunities and lost commendation by the master because of his behavior in this life. Now, as I said, most Reformed Covenant people teach that the unprofitable servant was really not a true believer. He was lost. I've argued that the outer darkness does not refer to hell, but a uh, picture of a wedding feast and those who were excluded from it because they were late. Remember the five virgins who didn't have the uh, oil for their lamps? So this terminology could be used in different contexts, and it was explained by the context in which it's used. So a final warning, don't build your doctrine on parables. It's dangerous and speculative to try to make each and every part of a, uh, of a parable to mean or refer to someone or something. Parables were used by speakers like Jesus to illustrate one truth. This parable, like the previous three, is applicable to those who will live during the seven years of tribulation, whether they be Jews or Gentiles. But the primary application is to Jews because they are the ones who will be saved when all of Israel comes to Christ. This is made clear by the preceding context. The man dealing with them as the master, the opportunity that is lost is for greater service, and the loss is of no praise or no reward. All of these parables encourage believers to be looking for the glorious appearing of the Lord Jesus Christ, no matter what age it is. In the Old Testament, what were they waiting for? The glorious appearing of their Savior. During the church age, what are we looking for? The glorious appearing of our Savior in the air. In the tribulation, what are they waiting for? They're waiting for the Lord Jesus to return to the Mount of Olives and begin his reign from the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, we should be watching, witnessing, and working as we wait. But if we want to be successful, we cannot be successful in men's eyes or even popular with others if we truly seek to please our Savior. Now, there are great truths contained within this text for us today. It's an ancient text, but it has modern application. There's always timeless truths contained within every passage of Scripture. So Jesus is telling us in this text that we will face a time of accounting in our lives. He will ask us not how much we have done to him for him, but how faithful we have been in doing it. This helps all disciples of every age define how they should think about work, success, and wealth. This parable, I believe, believe gives us a framework of how we are to serve, how we are to work, how we are to seek success in the church and in this world in which we live and wait. It tells us how we should use the gifts, the opportunities, and the wealth that we have. I find at least five practical lessons embedded in the text for us today. The first lesson of this parable teaches that success in life and the life to come is a byproduct of our work for him here and now. You'll recall that the Lord put Adam in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. All men are created to work. That includes you, ladies. Believers are called to a mission. Jesus Christ has called us to accomplish 
making disciples here and now. For too many believers, they see their salvation as simply an insurance policy against hell and damnation. Conversely, they see it as a Greyhound bus station where they're waiting for the bus to show up. They believe it doesn't matter what you do here and now as they await the arrival. Clearly, we are to not wait passively. We are to be busy working the bus station telling the passengers about the coming Savior. We are to be hard at work until he comes. We are to prepare for that time that is to come by using our talents here and now. If we work hard, if we glorify him, we will be rewarded in the time to come. The idea of godly success is working diligently in the opportunities that are afforded us. He expects us to and he will undergird us in that process. The second application of this parable to our lives today is that the Lord gives us everything we need to do in what he has called us to do. Many are tempted to feel sorry for this servant who had only one talent rather than two or five. In reality, he received a fortune just like the other two slaves, but he chose to bury it. The Lord gave him more than enough to meet the expectations that he had for his servant. The Lord Jesus expects us to generate a profit, a return on the gifts that he has given us. He will enable us to do it. Paul wrote, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared us in advance to do. We should associate this truth with our work for the Lord here and now. The third application of this parable teaches that all believers are not created equal. I don't care what the Declaration of Independence says, even though that's true. The Lord gave us according to our abilities, and not everyone has the same abilities. The master understood that the one servant, one talent servant was not capable of producing as much as the five talent servant. And we should understand that about one another. This should not lead us to protest the Almighty as being unfair. He is totally just because he is the creator of all. He has created us for his purposes and not our own. So then, even though we are not created equal in regard to talents, we're we're rewarded equally if we are faithful in the work that he has called us to do. That's why it's true that rewards given by the master can sometimes be exactly the same. The master measures success by degrees of effort and faithfulness, as we should as well. The fourth application of this parable is that we work for the master, not our own selfish purposes. The money was given to his servants not for their own use, but for his. The money they earned was his capital, and not their own. The servant's task was to be a steward of God's investment in them, and the quality of their stewardship would be measured by the master. Therefore, we should maximize our efforts in the use of our talents for the purposes that God has called us to, not to, not to aggrandize our own lives and feather our own nests. As you know, we live in a fallen world. The curse has made our work more difficult. We live in a culture that has gone bankrupt from the principles of the Bible. And yet, we too can be faithful in the midst of it. We too can do a good job and hear a well done, my good and faithful servant. We should not bemoan the fact that we are living now instead of in the 1950s. We should seek this 
as an opportunity to serve him effectively in the place that he has put us. The last application of this parable to life today shows that we will be held accountable. This is not about how to attain salvation. This is not about works righteousness. Rather, it speaks of the believer and how they are to live successfully and fulfill God's calling as we eagerly await his return. The unfaithful steward didn't use the master's gifting to him. He wasted his opportunity. As a result, the master will judge him as being wicked and lazy. Our responsibility is to do what he's called us to do and do it with integrity, reliability, and faithfulness. And then, when he returns, we will have commendation and rewards given to us. Would you pray with me? Lord, I said a lot today. Lord, you have said much more in your word. Help us to comprehend your will and desire for us as believers in Jesus Christ. Help us to accomplish your purposes. Help us to live the life you've called us to. Help us, Lord, to do it here and now, so then and there we will hear those precious words that we all want to hear, that we know. Well done, good and faithful servant, not you wicked, lazy slave. Go to the end of the line. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be faithful. Help us, Lord, to be faithful in your work. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.